0: Hello, and welcome to the show, Cybersecurity Where You Are. I'm Sean Atkinson, CISO here at the Center for Internet Security. I'm joined today by a very special guest, uh, Matthew Schwartz, uh, Executive Editor over at the Information Security Media Group. Matthew, how are you, sir?
1: I am doing great. Thank you, Sean, for having me on.
0: Wonderful. So we're talking uh, a very um, poignant topic is the influence of media uh, on information security and obviously with the information security media group, one of the you know the largest, providing such great content. I've had the opportunity to work with a number of uh, ISMG staff and uh, just a lot of really great curated content. But Matthew wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about not only yourself but uh, ISMG.
1: By all means, and thank you so much for the kudos and the shout out. I've got a lot of great colleagues, and we're doing things in a number of mediums. A fair number of videos since the pandemic, which is. As a journalist, such an exciting change. And that's been one of the fun things for me being at the organization now for a while, has been to get up and running with some other kinds of mediums, if you will. I'm a long-standing print journalist. I've been covering the field since before Y2K. And cybersecurity, I've had a real interest in that, probably from being a kid and just the whole concept of hackers. But as a professional, I've done a number of things. I've done travel journalism. I worked for a usability consulting company and did reports for them, which I, I find fascinating. It's a combination of cognition and usability, psychology, all that sort of stuff. But I've had a real focus for about the past 20 years on cybersecurity. I was freelance for a while, and I think the focus was because it is a hot topic. And if you have some degree of fluency with it, as I have come to hopefully obtain, then there's people who want you to help explain it to them and their audience at large. And that is what I've been doing. I worked a long time ago for Computer World. I've written for some more popular or populist, if you will, outlets like the Times over here in the UK where I live, also the Boston Globe, upon occasion, the old Wired News, which doesn't exist in that form anymore. And dark reading, information week, I was there, cybersecurity reporter for a while, and I've been now at ISMG for a while. And just to wrap up the very brief intro, it is a fascinating topic. I love waking up every morning and seeing what has changed overnight. Who could predict every day, practically, what you're going to see?
0: Exactly right. The velocity is, uh, it is amazing. Uh, again, from a medium perspective and the underlying topic, uh, I mean, like you say, it's uh, overnight. Uh, fundamentally, things can completely change and provide new perspectives. And it, it really leads into my first question, Matthew, um, in terms of how does the uh, media influence both public understanding and perception of information security?
1: That is a great question. I wouldn't want to speak on behalf of all media. <laughs> but I mean, as with any topic, I was trying to think of something analogous. And I was probably failing. But let's look at space missions, for example. There's rocket scientists working on those. There's lots of other deeply technical, extremely sophisticated, from you know, conceptual and intellectual sense sort of people working on that. And then use a big word, you've got interlocutors, you've got journalists who come in and they're not rocket scientists, but maybe they know how to speak to rocket scientists. And so you have this translator, if you will, I think of myself as an enthusiast. So not somebody who's cheerleading for cheerleading's sake, but someone who's very interested in the discipline and can hopefully communicate what is interesting about it Having spoken with experts, but also trying to speak to more of a mass market. At ISMG, we focus especially on cybersecurity practitioners, but I think a lot of the content tends to get looked at by technologists or hopefully just other people in general who find it interesting or somebody shares a link or it's, they find it on a website somewhere or they do a Google search and they go down that rabbit hole. And I love to take people down those rabbit holes. So I think when done well, which is something I always try to do, you are helping to demystify cybersecurity matters. And we can talk about what counts as cybersecurity because it seems to be more and more things these days. So there's a huge field of things that touch on cybersecurity And I think that increases the importance of talking about these things in what is an accessible, but also hopefully technically sophisticated way to get what is happening across clearly, but also legitimately, not sensationalist sort of stuff. And we can dive into that, but making it real, but also accurate.
0: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. In some cases, and uh, Matthew, I want to reflect on um, some of the work that you've done. Obviously, I've read uh, a number of your topics, specifically dark reading. I also see it as an educational opportunity as well, because there are some that see it as mysticism, right? This is all wizardry. I don't know anything that goes, I see the screen, I type, something happens perfect that, you know, I can do these things. And I do see an element of that. And I just wanted you to comment on, is that also a role for the media is to provide an educational element so that people are more aware of what they're doing with these systems? You know, the phones, uh, you, you speak of space. I mean, the, the technology in our current cell phones is more than uh, what was available for space missions, uh, obviously in the 60s. So it's, uh, you know, we've got a responsibility and a power and a capability just want to get your thoughts on that as well
1: definitely i think there's lots of different illustrations of how technically complex these things seem was it arthur c clark who said you know any sufficiently advanced technology it looks like magic and you look at the old star trek episodes and they're flipping open their communicators and you just have all of these reminders of how far we've come how quickly we've come but at the same time You see some sorts of lazy, I'd say, approaches to how you badge this. And I think visually, you tend to see things like zeros and ones in articles or hackers in hoodies, these things that don't actually explain what's going on, but tap into this perspective of it being, like you say, almost like wizardry, like you've magic these zeros and ones into being like Keanu in The Matrix with the green stuff flying by his fingertips. I think that obviously it taps into how people think about things. I think it does a disservice, though, because it doesn't actually explain any of this stuff. It's the, the Harry Potter wizard, what waving spell incantating sort of explanation, which doesn't really exist. It's fun. We love movies that have that, but it's not the real world. So. I've totally forgotten what your question was. I apologize. (laughs) That was perfect. That was perfect.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The the reason I, so we went down the educational route, Matthew. And the reason why is because it kind of leads me into my next topic. And it's one of the things I think media coverage, when done right, is provide also an influence and awareness to data breaches, to cyber threats. Here's something you need to do and be aware of. wanted to get your thoughts on the responsibility of media to be able to provide that back to the consumer.
1: There are so many different angles here, and I'm going to start with data breaches because you mentioned that and because I edit a site devoted to data data breaches called databreachtoday.com. And when it was started, they worried there wouldn't be enough data breaches to cover, like one a day or whatever, right? And of course, we're in this situation now where they're just flying fast and furious. There's so many different interesting angles there. When I was at Information Week about a decade ago, I remember covering things like these services you get whenever there's a data breach, and you get this letter that we all know what it means without it saying it. It typically goes along the lines of, Cyber criminals are hard at work and there's trillions lost every year. And dear reader, we too have lost something and it happens to be your data. Now you're left on the hook with having to manage the fallout. This is more U S or maybe Canada, North America specific, but a company experiences a data breach. We have these data breach notification laws since California's SB 1386. Circa 2003, which require breaches of a certain size or nature that they will notify the victims. So at least you get a heads up this is progress. I live in Scotland now, and we have GDPR over here. So, got some better protections in terms of the responsibility to protect data. But you need to explain all this to people, and you reach things like data or you risk things like data breach fatigue, because it keeps happening. It's like the cookie pop-up notices on websites. There's nothing we can really do about it. Obviously, it's more serious than that. So there is this tension where you will often see this language, which I'm happy to dive into in a bit, when organizations are breached. They deploy all of the marketing or spinmeister tools at their disposal to oftentimes, not everybody here, but oftentimes, attempt to minimize their culpability to make it look like, oh, there's just this unstoppable tsunami of cyber attacks, which is another word that I think is way, way overused. And, oh, we've been hit. And, okay, we're going to give you, they always call it free, but a year or two of prepaid identity theft monitoring services. I don't know how many overlapping service offerings I have got at this point. My first ever data breach notification came from the IRS as a U.S. taxpayer. And it's pretty much gone downhill since then. So I think, yes, from an education standpoint, there is a real need to remind consumers of what the reality is, what the culpability might be, to uphold, as I try to do, good examples of what are clear and transparent communications. And you do see them, and when you do, it's like, yes, this is the way things are meant to be. And then unfortunately, like I was saying before, you have a lot of organizations that get hit and try to pass the buck. And I also attempt to call that out, not trying to shame people for having suffered a breach because it can be inevitable. You can have the best security in the world and still get breached. But how an organization deals with it, I think, tells us a lot about them. So, so many different nuances. That was the kind of the data breach angle. There's another angle to, it, to this that I'll, I'll just highlight real quickly that we've seen, especially with the war between Russia and Ukraine, and we've already seen it now with the Israel-Hamas war, which is nation states attempting to do things that are propaganda, perhaps, or as we saw with the US pres- the presidential election in 2016, more than propaganda, disinformation operations information operations aimed at changing the political narrative, possibly upending the democracy of a country. And there are a lot of things that don't look very pernicious. For example, things like KillNet, which claims to have hit healthcare, for example. And when you dig into this, you find out maybe the goal of KillNet is not to hit healthcare, because they don't really seem to have done a whole lot, except to make a lot of noise and make the Russian war machine look really formidable and maybe cause some fear. And by repeating that stuff without adding context, perhaps you are basically doing Russia's dirty work for it. Which, again, it looks really low level, but when you pull back the frame a little bit, there's a massive cautionary note that you need to keep sounding with reporting and with reporting about this stuff in general. And also about how easy it is to fall into some of these traps. So there's the need to educate. There's the need to self-educate as a journalist and make sure you're not doing this. And then communicate that back to your readership as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the nuances that you mentioned, I mean, those permeate different levels of really understanding. And then it's trying to provide not only an educational element, but then also to your point, which I think is, is salient to where we are today is the misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, uh, and being, and I like the way you put it, but, you know, kind of agents of that with the, you know, if we think of social network theory, well, I just, you know, I just put it into my feed. Well, you know, 10,000 people read that and now they're spreading that. And then it's, you know, it's this, it just permeates uh, uh, the mathematics as it were in terms of its distribution. And I think it gets us to these points where we're, where is truth, and it's I think it's then finding media resources such as ISMG and others to say, "Well, I've read this on X, whatever it happens to be. I need to go validate, right?" And there is a responsibility to now validate information that you're reading in terms of those elements. So, building that type of capability and building that trust, uh, I think, from a media perspective is is so important. Um, what, what do you think?
1: I think building that trust is a great point and it's something that I and my colleagues always strive to do as a professional journalist you only have your name and you don't want to ever get in a situation where your integrity is being called into question I will say as someone who looks at a lot of news that's out there and not just news but when I'm looking for stories or when I'm trying to figure out what's going on or what's going on with something in particular I look at all the different sources I can find unfortunately I'm an optimist and I I am always concerned recently anyway by the fact that this seems to often be more and more difficult to do and I'm thinking in particular about however you describe the sorry state of affairs of what was formerly known as Twitter what is now X, it used to be a pretty good way of getting the temperature of something or connecting, especially with security experts. A lot of security experts sharing their perspective on things. I used to have to pick up the phone to them, and I sometimes still do that, or send them an email, and I sometimes still do that. But I mean, just to pick one, for example, Mikko Hoopnin, who is a great cybersecurity analyst, thinker, works. Or with Secure, used to be F-Secure, out of Finland, and many others. I just picked Mikko for, for one because he's been on for a long time. Y- you can dive into how he's looking at something, and, you can, and anybody could do that. Wonderful resource for journalists, but lots of people I know who are in the security field track a lot of these people. You have your, you have your list, and maybe you open it up in the morning and see what they're saying about things. And uh, I think it's unfortunate that it's become more difficult to do stuff like that. There's replacement social networks, but they don't have the size, the reach, and the ease of use that some of the others that we've had access to before have had. Like you say, social networks, you can accidentally amplify things that really you shouldn't be, but they've also been a wonderful way to connect with people. So I hope we can get back to some sort of a situation. Maybe I'm overly optimistic where, we're able to connect with each other in reliable, more large-scale ways again.
0: No, absolutely. I, I think it's right. And like you say, there, there's, uh, you know, I think it's a reputational piece as well. And, and like you say, there's the integrity of the name and and those that you trust in, like, um, you know, Mika and um, uh, for me, Flothrorion and others are providing such great content and an ability to, um, communicate these very technical issues in some cases, or give their opinion on something that's currently happening in in the, in, uh, the uh, uh, call it the cyberspace, as it were, we'll, we'll use a, a term there. And it really then helps to um, be able to dissect those. But in some cases, um, one of the things I do like is the collation of all of these different opinions into Articles and into these perceptions of um, either it's a current issue or it's a particular topic that's uh, you know that's permeating as it were through the um, uh, through the uh, realms uh, of media, and in some ways it, it helps to have kind of these media um, pieces available that have in some cases differing opinions, um, some that can. Compare, contrast, uh, and really provide a way to for the consumer to do that work. Now, there are some that are going to dive deep into those elements, right? You know, as a cybersecurity professional, I believe it's my responsibility to do that. But for the common use of the public that may not be as aware, I think it has, uh, you know, these consequences both positive and negative for media coverage in terms of high profile cyber incidents and one of the things i've seen is there are some sensationalist elements to it as well that may be distracting from the need of the public to be aware i just wanted to get your thoughts on if you've seen that uh, and really you know some of the best practices those that are uh, maybe not as well informed as yourself and others can address those particular articles to say Should I stop and do something or is this just here's an awareness piece? Hopefully that made sense, Matthew.
1: Oh, definitely, definitely. And I think that's a really useful distinction. Are we talking about something because we find it fascinating? And that's what I was touching on before as well with these experts that you follow on social media or just get some sense of what are they excited about or what are they concerned about? And that often leads to such interesting questions or maybe entire things that you never knew about. So when you are writing about it, that's a great point. Is there a call to action for readers? And oftentimes, if there is, we will make that real front and center. If there's some zero day vulnerability out there and a widely used product, people are gonna need to patch or mitigate that as quickly as possible. That is obviously, A real direct hit. Those are fun stories to write as well. They're very concrete. There's something happening, and there's useful information to relay. Sometimes there's things that are just good to know, or which may presage additional badness in the future. Not that you're all doom and gloom, but as a journalist, one of the fun things for me is getting to learn about stuff. And you start to get a sense of things, such as with the attack against Sony that was attributed to North Korea, it started somewhat quietly. It was about, what was that? It was the, uh, it was the movie that North Korea reacted to. In a, in a, I say it, it, didn't, it didn't cast the regime in a good light. So <laughs> the Guardians of Peace was the supposed hacktivist group that was retaliating, but which the US, US government said was actually Pyongyang. It started off small, and then it crescendoed. So you see that quite a bit, actually. You get a sense of, hmm, I don't want to, do want call out Sony for getting hacked yet again, as was the case back then. But ah, there's some smoke here. Maybe there's going to be some fire. So you see that. But again, stepping back, you asked about best practices. So I don't keep score. I do see on social media sometimes people calling out this or that, saying. Uh, I don't think this, this, this was the correct take. I think you could have done this a little differently. There's some best practices that I would recommend. I sometimes look for weasel words. And these are words where I think they're overused or should never be used. And one of them for me, and if you'll give me just a moment, as a journalist, we use oftentimes the AP Associated Press style guide and cyber attack is an entry they have. And in it, it says it should be reserved for only the most severe attacks that cause some kind of a physical result. So let's say something gets hacked and it blows up. It doesn't happen very often. Obviously, that would be a cyber attack. Possibly a lot of the stuff associated with the Russia-Ukraine war, you could call that a cyber attack. But whenever I have the desire which which I don't, I've drilled it out of my system. But if I did have the desire to use that word, or another one that I don't like, although some publications use is cyber weapon, they don't really tell me anything. If you say cyber attack, people know what you mean, but what is it describing? And I find, and I, I tell this to new reporters a lot as well, whenever you've got that word, don't allow yourself to use it. Force yourself to have to describe it some other way. And I can, it can be a crutch, I think, for young reporters to say that instead of attempting to accurately and excessively explain what's going on underneath the hood. It might be quite technical, but you might find as you dive into it that you find a really interesting way of discussing that. And as you gain experience with a journalist, you add all these little tools to your arsenal. So I always look at that as something to avoid, because I don't think it clearly communicates whatever is going on. A lot of organizations that get breached love to use the word cyber attack, because it sounds really scary. But what they might mean is they were using a well-known default username and password, and an attacker came along and managed to guess it. Their system wasn't protected by two-factor authentication. They weren't using any VPNs with whitelisting. They didn't have this. They didn't have that. They never say that, of course. They just say it was a devastating, it was a sophisticated, right? Oh, it's always sophisticated cyber attack. So language matters. And there's some some words like that where I, I studiously avoid them. When I see them, I often think this could have been said in a different manner that would have been more accurate, more interesting, more accessible. So those are just a couple of the little things in terms of best practices. Happy to go into more too, but I'll, I'll pause for a breath there.
0: No, I think that's great. And I'd love to dive into a little bit more of that because I think you're right. There's um, such a narrative now that I think, and again, you'll correct me when I'm wrong, um, is, you know, we we the, the term cyber attack um, is becoming, you know, kind of synonymous. And it's like, you know, the... Um, you mentioned the data breaches and you received that letter now. Back ten years, that's shocking. Now you receive them every other week and it's uh. Cyber attack, uh, But now we're starting to see cyber warfare and really starting to escalate some of these terms to try and keep that uh you know, that fear, uncertainty, doubt in people's mind. Have you seen a change in the vernacular that's being used in order to try and build sensationalism around elements or or is it being pretty constant in, in your mind?
1: That's a great question, and I don't really want to assign uh, blame or responsibility necessarily for this sort of sensationalist way that things can seem. I think it's good to call it out. I don't I don't do it, but you see it being done. I typically don't do it, but you see it being done. I don't know that there's some sort of top-down uh, scheme, if you will, to promulgate these words in order to stoke fear, uncertainty, and doubt on a societal level. I think oftentimes if people haven't talked about this before, they don't necessarily have the language. And so cyber attack might seem like a great word, but again, what does that mean? And so often with my reporting, not just around these words, but just in general, I'll read something maybe from Microsoft for example or another vendor and I'll just look at it and say I don't actually know what they mean there and that's not a value judgment necessarily it might just reflect somebody writing about it in a somewhat less accessible way than less accessible way than I might prefer and I often find by finding different ways to say that or to say what they're trying to say I'm also educating myself and the same thing just with with so many of these things, it's a process of educating myself so that in my head, I actually can explain it to somebody else. And I think that's oftentimes what we're doing as a journalist. We're speaking to experts and they'll tell us what happened. And you, I often will go, I don't really exactly know what you mean there. Can you explain it? me is if i don't have a phd in computer science or i am not an advanced threat researcher or someone who creates honeypots for fun for a living so i think that following that line of inquiry is really good and that brings me to you were talking about cyber warfare and i think yes we are seeing an increased use of that term again referring back to the israel hamas the latest war. We've seen this attempt. Some people seem to want to characterize there being some kind of a cyber war component to that, no matter what, even though there's not. And in fact, it may be the counter. The capabilities of Israel are very well known in terms of surveillance. They've got one of the most well-regarded intelligence establishments, government intelligence in the world. Attackers may have planned what we saw recently, uh, streaming across the border, the horrible campaign. They may have planned all that using totally offline means. And yet we see this attempt in multiple media outlets to talk about the cyber warfare capability of Hamas. And there has been some capability in the past, but I think that kind of reporting, I'm just using it as an example here, Needs to be heavily caveated. We don't see this happening now. Experts say, here's what we've seen in the past. Will we see it in the future? We don't know. So I think that's important. Again, referring back to your use or your mentioning cyber warfare, we've seen this a lot in the Russia Ukraine conflict. And a really useful question has been what do you mean by cyber warfare? Just like what do you mean by cyber attack? And A lot of really sharp thinkers on the cyber warfare front have been analyzing this. There was, I don't know if it was a 50-50 split before Russia's all-out invasion happened in February 2022, but a number of people expected that Russia was going to salt the digital battlefield or battle space, if you would, by uh, crashing Ukraine's infrastructure ahead of the troops flowing over the border. They were going to use synchronized cyber operations and kinetic operations to overwhelm their adversary, in this case, Ukraine. And as is by now obvious, we didn't see that happen. A lot of people thought that was going to happen. So this has been one of the really interesting, fascinating takeaways is maybe it's overly reductive to say cyber warfare didn't happen. Again, what do you mean by it? But we've seen this inability of Russia to coordinate its cyber operations with its kinetic operations. It did use Wiper malware. It did manage to brick, I think, hundreds of thousands of consumer broadband modems that connected to the uh, the Viasat satellites. That happened on the day of its invasion. That wasn't good for Ukraine. And Starlink came in and helped them out there. So, Fascinating stuff. That is arguably a cyber operation. And maybe it's semantics, but but it's not. You know, there's cyber warfare. What does that mean? There's a cyber operation, which we could say is in this case run by a nation state designed to have a specific goal. These are the attack tools they used. Here's the malware they used. Here is how it was written. You can get as techie or non-techie with that as you like and follow how things unfolded, how the VSAT people responded to it, all of that. So I think it's been fascinating to watch that. And again, back to the cyber warfare thing, it's not really been about cyber warfare. It's been about these more nuanced, focused things which add up to Russia's war strategy, but it turns out to be a lot less connected in the big picture than you might've thought It would be, which all goes back to the fact that if you want to really disrupt something, you probably drop a missile on it. And all this hacking stuff is fun to talk about and could be interesting, has been used, but it takes a lot of time and effort. And in the case of Russia, they're probably saving the really good stuff that they've got now for these low, slow, long cyber espionage operations, rather than using it as part of some unified... Cyber warfare campaign.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I think in some cases, as you mentioned, there's um, you know these long-term approaches to this type of attack strategy. You know, there there is obviously the sensationalist media where it's immediate. You know, they they can you know bypass firewalls and they're into systems, they're knocking systems down, and that doesn't happen overnight. That that takes a lot of reconnaissance and uh, enumeration of those underlying systems and. Ultimately, they patch, they change, they add new capability with the velocity of change in infrastructure that changes the attack path and that, well, we may need to have to reset. So, uh, you know, the alignment there is very, very important. And I love the way you uh, you phrased that and posed it in terms of your analysis on that question. That was awesome, by the way. Um, the question I have, and we've got a few more minutes, but wanted to... Um, get your tips on finding good media that's gonna, you know, that's reporting fact, um, it's uh, the research is there. Um how would someone who's wants to be more aware find that type of uh media or reporters or those that um you would say from transitioning from very, very technical to um, actionable, it, It's um, you, you don't need, again, the PhD in uh, computer science in order to understand. How would you uh, recommend or provide tips to those looking to be more informed in this space?
1: The good news is there is a lot more cybersecurity reporting and coverage today. I remember in the run up to the 2016 presidential election wondering if cybersecurity was going to be a component of either campaign. Russia, when it swept in with its attempt to influence the election, made it so. And as you know, the discussion of cybersecurity and its how much it permeates society has just continued to increase and increase. So, from a more mass media perspective, we've seen publications investing in cybersecurity coverage, bringing in really spectacular people. There's so many. I. I it's like the academy awards i don't want to not name anyone but reuters for example continues to do wonderful work washington post is, has got joseph men now leading a team that does great work the associated press um uh, uh, yeah, France press, uh, just for the wire services i see names now because thankfully as a reporter they're including people's names in these dispatches and You start, you know, Raphael Satie and uh, Chris Bing, I think, uh, over at Reuters are great. And they came up in what would traditionally be trade magazines or magazines anyway, with a really close coverage of cybersecurity. And so it's been wonderful to see the flow of people from those into these more mass media outlets. At the more technical side of stuff, if you're looking more consumer-y, you've got things like Ars Technica which has always been really good at the deep dive and not over-baking things. Anybody I'm talking about here, I'm not looking at it because it's got a sensationalist slant on things. The Register here in the UK has, for a long time, done great coverage. A newer publication, Bleeping Computer, is spectacular, especially with ransomware, which we haven't really gotten into, but which is such a fascinating thing to track and to write about because. It's basically the Harvard business case study of how to make lots of money as a criminal. And they've really continued to refine this in some fascinating, horrible, but fascinating ways. And Bleeping Computer is really good. It really has its finger on the pulse of that. There's a lot of vendors out there that do really interesting blogs and that sort of thing. Uh, Recorded Future, for example, has got a news outlet now called The Record, which is very good. There are others as well. I'm probably forgetting a lot of things. I follow so many different things online. But when you look at these wire services and some of the big publications operating today, they've got some really good people on staff. So if you find somebody that you like, you can follow them. And not just there, but probably on some of the social media outlets as well. So, that's not an overly specific answer, except to say that there's a lot of good stuff out there, which is great. I'm so glad that we're seeing this increased availability of really astute cybersecurity coverage and breaking stories, finding stories. You've got the new 404 Media, which has people who used to be advice, for example, really pushing forward with investigative journalism as well. Everybody loves Brian Krebs, of course, as well. If you want to get down to the weeds with some of the really scary cybercrime stuff I mean scary and I'm not going to make you scared just articulate to you the real cutting edge of what's going on here he he continues to be great as well so just so many different things to choose from
0: oh absolutely I think uh, and again I, I'll give you a timeline and, and you can correct me where, where I'm wrong but I think the last five years has seen such a some of it felt amateurish to begin with you know it was topics and people wanted to you know either make a name for themselves or just have something to write about that they were passionate but what i've seen is such a professionalism now in the space that like you say there are so many different areas where you can go and get good content well written uh appropriately phrased and termed for mass consumption but then there's also paths for those Technically inclined to be able to review. I think, even, um, you know, it even leads to those elements where it's understanding it from a policy perspective. And, you know, you're looking at um, decision makers in many different uh, phases of organizations, government, things of that nature, that are consuming this type of content. And it's good because it needs to be um, in a kind of phrased in a way that brings awareness because I'll give you this, my thought, Matthew, here is, um, as we start to, uh, you know, we, we've digitized our lives, it's just no no doubt, this is what it is. Um, and I think when I, am you know, we see different regulations coming in that there, there needs to be cybersecurity awareness at board levels and through management. And I, I think there's a true responsibility for everybody to have this. I mean, it, it's, you're impacted by it every day. Uh, you know, you're, you're a consumer, you're, there is a responsibility of, you know, not reading a Euler and clicking just accept just to get through to install and these types of things. And there's a, there is a need to understand these, what you're clicking has consequences. And, and I love what you said before because it's, it's not just this ephemeral, oh, it, it'll never exist anymore. This is permanent, right? There there is a permanency to this information that's archived and can be retrieved at a moment's notice. And I think that uh, sometimes I think that's transparent between generations in some cases. Um, But I think there's there's such wonderful work going on right now to bring awareness to these topics, including privacy. Uh, Privacy, again, uh, you you mentioned GDPR, and I think that set the tone with California and just other countries around the world. Uh, building out these uh, capabilities as a method of protection. And I think that's, again, an influence of what we've seen from the media and, uh, you know, the cyber operations and things of that nature. But want to get your thoughts and, and, and see if um, that stream of conscien- consciousness made sense as well. <laughs> definitely, Sean. Yes, <laughs>
1: yes. Ex- excellent stream of consciousness. Uh, <laughs> definitely literacy. You talked about there being a lot more discussion or literacy, perhaps, in the last Five years. If you go back, I'm going to be imprecise here, maybe 10 years, maybe more. Just as a brief aside, you had the emergence of companies like CrowdStrike, which started to make public information that had previously been restricted to intelligence agencies. You started to see details of what were often nation state attacks being released as research reports that anybody could learn from. Experts, cybersecurity professionals that I speak with, some of them are still thinking or saying out loud, I can't believe this shift happened. I used to have to get read into code name level things when I was responding. Now, before I can get read in, the information's already in the public sphere, going, it was this Russian APT group done, you know, done done it, or something like that. So so many changes, but we've seen an increased availability of high, sophisticated, highly sophisticated technical language and indicators of compromise and explication of tradecraft, which I think has given a lot of people a much better sense of how attackers are doing what they're doing. So whether you think it's good or bad that we have this level of information in the public realm, the genie's out of the bottle. Kind of like you said, everything's digital. Maybe some intelligence agencies are using typewriters for their biggest secrets, but for the rest of us, it's all digital all the time. And so there's been a big increase in the circulation of knowledge about how attackers are working, which I think has led to a commensurate or hopefully nearly commensurate increase in knowledge by defenders about what they can be doing to blunt these sort of attacks, to better spot them when they do occur, and to more rapidly mitigate them so i think there's greater literacy overall we need to make sure that we're continuing to teach it i guess what the state of the art needs to be with literacy continues to change because things get even more digitized new technologies new protocols are coming along as we know the old ones also have some vulnerabilities that get found and bad stuff happens too so everything's getting more complex I guess is one of the downsides that's life right but one of the upsides is i think we are much more sophisticated in our understanding thinking and talking about it so yes i think it's important to acknowledge over the past five years and then before that as well there's been a big shift in the level of digitization amongst everybody society and our understanding of it and that's going to continue isn't it it's just going to keep getting more and more Complicated unless we can figure this security thing out. I mean, for me, back to that usability thing, if you want to make something really usable, people shouldn't need. I'm going to look at my Apple iPhone. Before that, it was uh, an iPod Touch. It was one of those things you picked up, and almost anybody could just figure out how to use it. You didn't need to think about it too much. And I wish, I hope, we can get security more in that direction. You shouldn't have to run anti-malware. You shouldn't have to do all these things that security experts always say you have to do. In an ideal world, it would already be taken care of and we would remove this need for humans to have all these passwords to hand and whatever because that would improve our security, wouldn't it? But we're not in that situation now, unfortunately.
0: Not yet, not yet. We're. We're. I think there's a move in that direction and uh... I think we've got a few more episodes, Matthew, because we've not even touched ransomware. We've got AI now, which seems that everybody wants to be that solution to the usability problem. So we've got a lot more to talk about. But unfortunately, that's the end of the first episode, Matthew. Obviously, we will bring you back because we've got a lot more to talk about. Thank you so much. And again, just want to appreciate your work and the work of ISMG. Just great content usable, consumable, educational, uh, and uh, topical. And so just thank you so much for all the work that you and the team do uh, over there.
1: Well, thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure chatting. Happy to do so with
0: you anytime. Thank you. And to our audience, thank you so much. Um, Questions, concerns, topics, podcast at cisecurity.org. Remember to subscribe in all the usual ways. With that, thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.